Twisted Sisters Crime will contain mature content, graphic descriptions, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast may upset trauma survivors. What? Why are we here so early? Surprise! We have a special episode of Twisted Sisters Crime for all of our listeners today. We just wanted to thank you all for your support. So we're going to do a little midweek bonus episode. So our stories today are ones that we both have passions about, but they're not in the same area, so we will not be having any stats to go over. So instead, let's get ready for some fun. (laughs) All right, you guys. I have Joseph, or Joe Goldberg. He was born April 8th, 1988. Joe Goldberg was an only child born into a dysfunctional relationship. He idolized his mother, Sandy, who he said was his home no matter where they were. His father was abusive to him and his mother. His mother frequently cheated on his father, often leaving Joe alone in public areas while she was doing so. His father would physically abuse him, such as putting cigarettes out under his arms, trying to force him to confess his mother's infidelity, So, not really a good situation. No, poor Joe. Poor Joe. (laughs) His mother would sometimes take Joe and leave his father, usually in the company of another man, but she would come back. She also hid a gun in a closet where Joe often would hide, and Joe found that. She did tell Joe one day that she wanted to kill his father. Oof. But instead, Joe later used the gun to shoot his own father. Oh. Protecting his mother from beating and killing him. His mother told him that he was a good boy who would never hurt anyone and was always protecting her. Shortly after this, she turned him over to social services, telling him that being with her was not the best thing for him, and he was put into a group home. I mean... At least she... She knew. She knew. (laughs) This probably isn't the best. While in the group home, Joe became friends with an older man named Mr. Mooney. He was a a retired Soviet Union prison guard who owned a bookstore. He took him underneath his wing. He took care of Joe and guided him, but he would also abuse him in different ways that he saw he was teaching Joe. This included like locking Joe into a glass cage in the bookstore basement for periods of time until Joe proved that he learned this lesson. Mm. So poor Joe, he's just poor getting Joe. it from everywhere. He is. That's all right. Later on in the years, Joe became the manager of a bookstore and he ran into a girl named Guinevere Beck, and he started manipulating everything and everyone around her. They did first meet at Mooney's, the bookstore where Joe worked. Right after this encounter with Beck, he starts becoming obsessive and finding everything about Beck that he could on all of her social media accounts. Joe's also a caretaker of one of his next door neighbors, Paco, who was in an abusive home and Joe would lend him books to help him escape. So Joe kind of had a soft spot for Paco as he sees a lot of himself in 
him. Paco's situation at home with his stepfather, Ron, did start to become increasingly abusive. Oh, no. So sad, right? He's just, like, always by these abusive people. I don't know how to explain that. <laughs> so, Joe starts stalking Beck to Brooklyn, where Beck gets drunk and reads poetry to a hipster open mic night kind of thing. Joe starts kind of getting shy around it, so retreats to the subway. And then that's where a very drunk Beck shows up and falls onto the train track. So he saves Beck from her death before the train comes. While all in the process of this, he steals her phone. Her the next day thinking that she was super drunk and couldn't find her phone. She just ends up replacing it. So while spying on Beck, Joe does discover a guy named Benji Ashby. That's kind of her current hookup buddy and pretentious trust fund baby. Joe does believe that Benji is an obstacle in his future relationships with Beck. See, like Joe just has these moments where he's such a good guy. He's, he's such a good guy. He saves her people, life, but then he says, "Oh no, this person's bad." So Joe tricks Benji into meeting him for an interview about Benji's soda company. He leads him to the bookstore basement and hits him over the head with a mallet. He keeps him captive in the store's climate-controlled cage. That was the one that he was exactly put in when he was younger, too. So Joe didn't want any suspicions being raised about where Benji was, so Joe starts pretending to be him on his phone, social media accounts, just to keep kind of the facade that Benji just decided to travel somewhere remote with no notice to anybody. This does convince everyone, including Beck. Joe comes to a final decision and he kills Benji by using his peanut allergy against him. So Benji does die of anaphylactic shock. Joe's got some numbers under his belt. He does. He does. His dad. I mean, I guess his dad's only one. His dad, now Benji. Now Benji. I mean, petty theft. It's okay. Light stalking. It's okay. We all do our stalking every now and then, God. Not too long after Benji's death, Joe and Beck start officially dating. Beck has some really good friends. Their names are Peach, Lynn, and Annika. Peach kind of has like this gut feeling telling her that Joe's no good and tries to tell Beck these something's up with him. Joe starts to feel threatened by her and does attack her one night while she's running. Beck calls Joe the next day saying that Peach had been attacked and that she had survived this attack. Oh no, is okay. this the end? Oh, I don't know. A little while after the attack, Peach kind of goes to the bookstore to confront Joe. You know, she's found out all of his secrets. So feeling even more threatened, Joe got her downstairs and shot her. He did make her death look like it was a suicide. Ugh. So sad. Beck, trying to deal with the death of her friend, starts going to this therapy place and cheating on Jill with her therapist, Dr. Nikki. Beck! Naughty girl. Just giving him reason. <laughs> <laughs> Joe talks to Beck and she does confirm the cheating, so Joe breaks up with her. Kind of when they're like breaking up, he knows about this. He's contemplating just killing Dr. Nikki. 
but realizes soon that he could punish him in just like a different way. Joe kidnaps Beck and strangles her to death. Four months later, it was revealed that Joe wrote and released a book, The Dark Face of Love. So kind of with that, no one knows who kills Beck. We don't know who killed Beck. After his book's been released, Joe moves to Los Angeles, and sometime later, he encounters Will. Now, Will is a hacker from Craigslist. Will tells Joe that he cannot fulfill his request to create an untraceable identity in a limited time frame. Joe kidnaps Will and imprisons him in a plexiglass vault hidden in a storage facility that he's been renting. So now Joe's just gonna use Will's name. With limited funds, Joe searches for a job, later meets a guy named Calvin. He's the manager of a trendy, family-owned, health-conscious kind of grocery store. He goes to this interview, and Joe's hired as a clerk in the book cafe of the store. Upon leaving, Joe, or Will, I guess, encounters Love Quinn, a widow, spirited local who also works in the kitchen with her brother, Forty. Kind of weird names. Soon after, Love tries to make advantages on Joe, but he initially like tries to resist this just due to his history with his Beck. ex, Beck, <laughs> you know? Later, Joe ends up at the DMV to require an ID card to kind of make it a little bit more official that he's Will. <laughs> and he meets Love while in the DMV. She offers to take him on a food tour of the city, kind of just to get to know him. Joe finds himself attracted to the idea and does agree to the plan. Love tells him that their encounters are not more than like mere coincidence but they are fate oh so she's kind of like mm, i want you boo <laughs> adam yeah the next day love takes joe to the fish market and then kisses him after some time has passed in their relationship love with love and joe 40 starts becoming kind of eerie of joe and tries to tell love well love is already pregnant with joe's child at this time and with all these suspicions, her brother kind of like is saying like, you need to leave him, like he's not good. Love ends up killing him, <gasps> right? She kills her own brother, that's so sad. They're perfect for each other. Right? They are. They do move and run away together to look for a new place to live. However, guys, we don't know where they ended up running to. So keep listening to find out more details about this story. Hopefully soon we can figure out where they ran. Hopefully. Ooh. Ooh. Joe. Joe Lo Beck love. Joe love. I wonder if their baby will start killing people. Probably. I mean, that would be kind of cool to have like this huge family like killing spree. <laughs> Goals. I mean, with the genes that can Goals. Oh, yes. Goals. Okay, so my story starts with a man named George Howard Scubb, who was born 
1969 and raised in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So he went to John F. Kennedy Elementary and then graduated in the class of 1987 at South Scranton Intermediate. Once he graduated, he started working for the city, mainly being in charge of the Nayog Park. And so this is when things started to take a turn for the worse. At the end of 2009, people in the Scranton area began to disappear and turn up again within the next week, strangled to death. Searches went on for months for this so-called Scranton Strangler, with police constantly finding nothing. A local volunteer sheriff's deputy set up a neighborhood watch group titled the Knights of the Night in search for the Strangler, but still they had no luck. Whoever thought of this Knights of the Night, I feel like is genius. Genius. And it's like knights, like, you know, like a knight in shining yes, armor. Yes, queen. Yes. 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 <laughs> Me. So finally, in November of 2010, there was a standoff at George's apartment, but he did manage to escape in his vehicle. There was then a car chase that most of Scranton will remember, some even saving gravel from the roads the Strangler took for prosperity. Police say that they were led to George as the strangulations were occurring at the park he was in charge of, as well as a few tips from locals about this man. It is unclear how police sorted through these tips as another tip talks about an older man in business casual attire covered in blood, as quoted, on his way to work. The police did state that they tracked this Creed Breton down after his shift and he stated that his strange attire was just a Halloween costume. This man has been under police radar for being involved in other crimes, but not related to the strangulations. That's what I'd use, too. <laughs> right? My bloody clothes for murdering someone. Yeah. That's Perfect. just Halloween. <laughs> Calm down. All right. So at the trial, prosecutors did use empanadas from a local restaurant called Ernesto's to reconstruct the attacks of the strangler for the jury. This, along with the pictures and testimonies from surviving witnesses, seemed to be enough for the jury to unanimously decide George Howard Scubb was guilty and put him on death row. So it sounds like a good, happy story, right? Yeah, it looks like they seem to get him. Yeah, but although there are those that believe that he was innocent, not only that, but they believe that the real Scranton Strangler might have been on his own jury. What? No. Yeah. This starts with a man named Toby Flenderson, nothing more than an HR rep for a local paper company. Many suspicious circumstances led to this theory, including Toby being missing from the office when the cops finally caught the strangler in the November 11th car chase. This theory, however, would require Toby to either escape the pursuit to, or to have framed George. But the other circumstantial evidence may help to tie Toby to the crime. All Toby could ever talk about at work was this case. We have all heard about killers injecting themselves into the case, right? Well, here was Toby jabbering on endlessly, even though he was no longer a juror. Then he started to feel guilty. Was this just a citizen second-guessing themselves, Or a murderer guilty that he had framed a man he had no qualms with? George was on death row, which did add to Toby's guilt. Members from Toby's job recall that there was a baby christening during the time that the Stra Scranton Strangler was active that Toby did not attend. Well, okay, he came, but he never actually walked into the church. 
He just looked at the stained glass window of Christ and said, quote, you and me have a lot of catching up to do, end quote. Hmm. Little suspicious. Little. Another co-worker, Gabe Lewis, had paperwork from a therapy session forced between Toby and his estranged manager, Michael Scott, in which Toby himself marked that he was severely at risk for homicidal behavior. Toby did eventually go to Hunlock Creek, Pennsylvania Correctional Facility to confront George, and he did come out having been strangled by George himself. It's unclear if George did this in anger once he discovered that Toby thought he was innocent, or if Toby told George that he was the real strangler and this aggravated George to strangle him. Perhaps the most damning evidence of all to Toby may be simply his scorned heart. The killings didn't start until his office crush, Pam Beasley, began seriously dating Jim Halpert. As we have learned, a scorned man can be pushed to do many things, being ignored in his advances, constantly bullied at his job, and alone in his life might have pushed Toby Flenderson to kill. However, to this day, George Howard Scubb is still guilty for the crimes of the Strangler. There is also some who believe that a strange man from a local beet farm named Moe's may be to blame, since he is strange and seems to have a considerable amount of land to hide bodies in. He was ruled out, though, since he shares the farm with his cousin Dwight Schrute, the previously mentioned volunteer sheriff's deputy, who proved that Moe's does not have the intelligence to pull this off. Dwight, however, shared no comment to the gravestones discovered in their backyard. What? <laughs> they have a bunch of gravestones in their backyard, and what? he's just like, ah, oh, don't worry about it, it's just a farm. It's just a farm, they're just my pigs. <laughs> Psych! He actually we eat them! <clears throat> I read... Um, he has, like, this, like, bed and breakfast thing, right? Okay. There's a marriage ceremony he'll perform where he will dig graves and have you stand in your graves while you get married. Like, he thinks it's super romantic. I guess him and... Yeah. I mean, because you are saying, like, till death. Yeah. So, it's like... So, maybe that's why the graves are there. Yeah, but why would you want to be buried on this, dudes? Maybe you don't want to be buried. You're just getting married on his beet farm. He has a he has themed rooms in his okay yeah breakfast like irrigation okay. so cute I like it you know I didn't want to say anything but I think that is from a story from a TV show I've watched you know honestly I was kind of thinking the same thing about yours hmm <laughs> uh, well you know it's a April Fools! <laughs> These stories are not real. They are, of course, only works of fiction. Mine was based on Joe Goldberg from You, which is on Netflix. It's a wonderful show. And I got my story from The Office, which is no longer on Netflix, but was made by NBC, and hopefully all you guys can watch it because it is the best show of all time. <laughs> Sorry to pull all of your legs, but we wanted to have fun. Hopefully you enjoyed this silly episode. And don't believe anything that anyone tells you today. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember to stay smart, stay safe, stay twisted. <laughs>